0: For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight.
1: But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name.
0: But the Lord said to him, Go. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened.
2: I don't know a lot of things about a lot of things, but I do know this. This Acts chapter 9 fills me with hope every time I read it. I have a lot of questions for God when I get to be with him someday. And one of the questions that's on my mind constantly is going back to Acts chapter seven at the end as Stephen, one of the church's first deacons is being stoned to death, as he's there outside the city walls with all the men who are angry, throwing stones at him as his injuries are increasing and as his consciousness is fading. He falls to his knees and cries out with a loud voice, this prayer, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep in Acts chapter 8 and Saul approved of his execution. I have a lot of questions for God. One of the questions that I have for God is that God, Lord, in your sovereignty, how does the prayer of Stephen, what did you do with that prayer in, in Saul's life? I know that God chose Saul from the foundation of the earth, but when you understand that Saul was in some sense the Adolf Hitler of his day, Hunting down and imprisoning and killing everybody who is part of the way of Jesus Christ. This is what comes to my mind. I, I like to watch World War II documentaries. I love them. I'm weird. And when we all get to the when we get to the point in the narrative where Adolf Hitler is found dead because he committed suicide in his bunker, there's a little bit of a relief. Like finally. Finally, this guy is no more. No more is he going to be unleashed on us human beings to wreak havoc on the earth and kill millions of people. But the gospel is so much better than this because the gospel message is, the gospel on display in this narrative is God taking the Adolf Hitler of his day and not killing him, but transforming his life into one of the most powerful tools that ever existed in the Redeemer's hand. And if that doesn't fill you with hope about the power of God and the power of the gospel message, I don't know what will. This is an incredible passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. So the question we're going to wrestle with today is this, how is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ vividly depicted in the life of Saul of Tarsus? And I think that the gospel is, the gospel message is articulated and put on display in Saul's life, and so I'm just going to work my way through it this morning. The first, the first step in this process is this, you hated God and wanted to rid him from your life. You hated God, and you wanted to rid him from your life. Chapter 9, verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, way in my Bible, in the ESV is capitalized, and that is referring to anybody that belongs to this movement of Jesus Christ followers. That's what he's referring to that any belong, that belong to the way, men or women, might be brought bound to Jerusalem. Now, first some history. Why does he need this letter? He needs a letter because Damascus is, is way up north from Jerusalem. And it's actually, at this time in history, it's in a different jurisdiction. It's not part of Israel. It's part of the Nabataean kingdom. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So that's under the jurisdiction of another kingdom, but also a kingdom that has a common enemy with Israel, and that is Rome. <laughs> they don't like the Roman Empire. They don't like them around these parts. And so these letters act as sort of a, there's kind of a treaty, maybe an agreement between these two these two groups of people. So these papers kind of act like an, an extradition paper. You know, this guy, the, the high priest writes out, this guy, Saul, is coming on our behalf, And if he finds any Jesus followers, maybe to them defective Jews, you know, people that have decided to leave the Jewish faith and follow Christ, this man has the authority on our behalf to bind these people and bring them back to Jerusalem. We'll deal with them here. And because of the relationship that existed at this time between Israel and the Nabataean kingdom, this was allowed. This was allowed. Saul is on his way, not only has he rejected Jesus in his own life, Saul is on his way to rid, to exterminate the way from the earth. Perhaps he sees it as a threat, probably so, but he's going to get rid of it altogether. Folks, how many of us can relate to this? Part of my testimony is that I grew up in church. I went to Sunday school as a boy. I, I thought that uh, youth group was great for a time. And uh, VBS, I still have the Bible in, uh, on my shelf in my office for uh, bringing the most visitors uh, in a single week of VBS. That was my reward, was a, a new Revised Standard Bible with a picture of Jesus on the front cover. I looked at that thing all the time. And um, I grew up in church. But as I got into my teenage years, I didn't want to have anything to do with God. I wanted to do things my way, right? I wanted to live the way Scott wants to live. And so I set about not only stopping from going to church, but also to try to live my life according to the way I wanted to live it. And in our world today, we see, what do we see? We see all kinds of folks out there that are trying to eliminate God from from the conversation. You can't bring up God in a public space. You can't bring up God in a public debate. You can't. Forget about this. We live very much, turn over in your Bibles to Romans 1. Uh, We live very much like the Bible describes before Christ as described in Romans 1.18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Oh my goodness, don't we live in that time? And, and wasn't that us before coming to Christ? Yes, there is a God. Yes, we grew up understanding that that there is a God, but we will we will choose in our brains to believe any other narrative that has any ring of truth, just so we don't have to live our lives God's way. That was my testimony. And I see that's what the world's doing today. Perhaps you are too. For what can be known about God, Romans goes on to say, is plain plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the state of our hearts before we come to Christ. What's even more twisted up about Saul is that Saul thought that he was being zealous for God, that he's going to followed the Old Testament law, and he's going to follow it to the best that he possibly could, even if it meant traveling great distances and persecuting the church. He thought he was doing the right thing. What was the thing that he wasn't factoring in? What was the truth that he was suppressing? The truth that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, We hated him. We wanted to run him from from our lives. But what do we see? We see a God who pursued you, and you had an encounter with Jesus. Back to Acts chapter 9. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light came from heaven and shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Stop right there. It's important, I think, that this is Jesus. Sometimes an angel of the Lord appears and gives a message. That's what an angel is, right? A messenger. Sometimes the Holy Spirit prompts people. But in this passage, we see it is Jesus himself who is having an encounter with Saul on the road to Damascus. Why is this important? Because apostle means sent one. That's what it means. And it's important that Paul becomes an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is sent into ministry by Jesus Christ. That's why he can hold that title. There's only 12 of them, and he's one and you will be told what you are to do. I'm sorry, rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. Interesting. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. I'm I'm guessing this is a speculation that Saul was saying there was a few things going on here at once. First of all, he's fasting and praying because apparently Saul is now realizing I have got this all messed up. Like I have really, the way that I've been living, oh my, what about Stephen, that guy that we stoned to death back in Jerusalem? I'm on my way to Damascus to wipe out the, the Christian population up there. This Jesus is real. I've just had an encounter with him. How does this compute? He's, his, I'm sure his theological brain is going back into the Old Testament going, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus is the one that was talked about in Isaiah 53? Jesus is the one? Je-. And all the lights are starting to come on. The Lord gave him some time and space to process this, right? So he's neither eating nor drinking. He's fasting and praying and probably trying to make this all make sense. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision. So here we see God sovereignly orchestrating this whole thing. God said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord, or here I am, Lord. This is a very common Old Testament formula where the Lord calls somebody's name and they say, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street that's called Straight and to the house of Judas and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he may regain his sight. Now, what's about to happen is Ananias is going to have a bit of a reaction. Imagine that the Lord appears to you and says, Adolf Hitler, I want you to go. There's a man at at your friend's house named Adolf Hitler. And you know about Adolf Hitler, right? He's got a reputation. He's a bad dude. I want you to go find this Adolf Hitler. And I want you, you know, he's received a vision. You're going to pray for him. Now, what would your reaction be to that? Would you pack a weapon? Right? I mean, Ananias' reaction to that is very telling. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. He's like, You're not talking about Saul from, you know, Philistia, no. You're talking about Saul from Tarsus, that guy. Are we all on the same page here? I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias is having a a moment with the Lord where he's saying, say what? Who? Who? Now this next verse, verse 15 and 16, if this doesn't, I mean, think about who our God is for just a minute, that God is going to take this man who has been killing his saints, persecuting his saints, probably just, well, it says he was breathing threats and murder, He's making it known to all of the followers of Jesus Christ, I am going to get you, and you will not escape me. The slanderous things that must have come out of his mouth, the, the, the murderous attitudes and, and the actual murderous events that Saul has participated in, and our God, who is full of grace and mercy, says the following words to this man, Ananias. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. And let's just pause for a minute and and remember that when Jesus is saying he's going to carry my name, that he's not saying that he's just going to carry the name J-E-S-U-S or have it on a t-shirt or something like that, that he's going to carry with him. He's going to be a minister of everything that Jesus stands for, all that he taught, all that the gospel means. Paul is going to be a minister of that in this world. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Oh, my goodness. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this passage. It fills us with such hope to know that you are a God who could be so merciful to such a monster. And for us, Father, to think that we're any better than Saul of Tarsus is to misunderstand and not appreciate fully the grace and the mercy that you've shown on each one of us who has been shown who you are and been given the opportunity to respond in faith. Thank you for this, Lord. Amen. This is incredible. Anyway, so Ananias departed and entered the house. He's a brave man. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. Lots of things to share here. First, John six forty four: No one can come to the Father unless he draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. My testimony is is that when I came to know Jesus, I was trying as hard as I could to forget him. I was trying as hard as I could to live for Scott, for me. And apparently that's what Saul was trying to do too. Saul was trying to make a name for himself in the Jewish community. He's going to go on to say in other letters that he writes about how he was excelling far beyond all of the men of his age in theological knowledge and, you know, probably rhetoric, you know, making a good argument, giving a good speech. He was he was really into, he was a high achiever. He was moving up the ranks. And God, yeah, Jesus got a hold of him and drew him to himself. Now, this is not the way I experienced salvation, but I do know this, that I I was trying to, as hard as I could to go my way, and when I heard the gospel message at the age of 17, there was a change that I can't explain. God drew me to himself. It's wonderful. And look at what God did to Saul. God brought you to the end of yourself. This is what he did with Saul. Saul's on his way to carry out what he thought was his great mission, and God put a stop to it and said stop persecuting me change live a different way i'm going to show you who i am and it radically changed Saul's life galatians 1:20 says this i have been crucified with christ it is no longer i who live but christ lives in me and the life that i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me the good news of jesus christ will stop you in your tracks and reorient your entire life we're going to talk about that not only did he do this did he come to the end of his bring him to the end of himself but he gave his life purpose saul's purpose up to now was just to be zealous for the old testament law thought that he was being pleasing to god and to just wipe out this jesus movement that's what he thought his purpose in life was but when god Gets hold of our life through Jesus Christ, our life is completely reoriented. Most of us are not trying to wipe out some movement on the earth. Most of us who, before we come to Christ, we're just trying to live for the kingdom of me, myself, I, you know, the unholy Trinity. We're trying to live selfishly for our own pleasures and our own good. We see it in the world all the time. And God says, no. When you come into contact with my son, he's going to teach you to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I don't know if you're paying attention to what's going on in our culture today, but our young people, meaning our high school kids, our college students, our young adults are suffering from something that some folks are calling a meaning crisis. They don't have any purpose. And when they exhaust themselves trying to find and satisfy the selfishness through whatever, you can imagine, whatever sinful activity that they feel like is going to satisfy themselves, they quickly realize that it will not. See, wired into us, because God created us, the way of happiness, joy, satisfaction, whatever you want whatever name you want to hang on it, in this life is to live for others, not for self. And that starts with loving God with everything that you've got and it spills out into loving your neighbor as yourself. of considering others, working for the good of others, being a blessing to others. This is what truly gives our life purpose. This is the way that God calls us into. And not only that, but he also gives us in the Great Commission, therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. And He invites us to go on a mission of helping other people become disciples of Jesus Christ and walk in the same way of love, loving God and loving others. That's our purpose in life, to learn how to love God. It's a process, folks. I'm going to admit it to learn how to love others. It's a process. God gives us the tools. He gives us, empowers us with the Holy Spirit. He helps us within the context of the body to learn the way of love and then to learn to help others walk in the way of love. It reorients the way we use our speech, our time, our treasure, our talents, everything. This is a message that this this generation right now, the one that we're living in, our young people need to hear it because they're suffering for lack of it. I find it very interesting, by the way, that uh, God blinded Saul. You ever think about that? Why did he blind him? I don't know. Speculation on my part. Saul's a very educated man. Lots of school, sat at the feet of Gamaliel. I'm sure his parents put out a pretty penny for his education. And God, on the road to Damascus, blinds him. Maybe this is a metaphor for Saul. you don't see anything apart from me. You can't see anything about this life. And so he sends his disciple, God does, Ananias, to touch him, pray over him, and scales fall off, and then he can see. And this is consistent with God's word, right? God gives you eyes to see, right? All the time in the Old Testament, you're hearing God's prophets say, These people have ears, but they do not hear. They have eyes, but they do not see. And they have stiff necks, they're stubborn. And God invades our life draws us to himself, and gives us new eyes to see. Psalm 119.18. I'm going through Psalm 119 in prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Loving it. But this is what Psalm 119 says. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. God gives us new eyes. In all different kinds of ways. But here's one way. And that is that God promised to refine you. He's going to take you where you are. He's going to take Saul where he is. By the way, he says... He says, I will, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Why do you think God is going to, you think God is allowing Saul to suffer simply for punishment for what he's done to Stephen and others? No, the Bible is very clear. He's going to allow him to suffer to refine him, to grow him and change him and make him more like Jesus Christ. And that exactly, as we watch Paul's life unfold, Saul's life unfold. The rest of Scripture, that's exactly what we're going to see. We're going to see a man growing and changing and becoming more like Christ. Our old eyes would look at the trials of life and the sufferings that we might go through. Our old eyes would look at those sufferings and go, God, get me out of this. Lord, and we even as people, we might reach the conclusion that God hates me because He's allowing me to go through this particular trial. And nothing could be further from the truth. God's word is clear. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that it, though it perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When we encounter Christ, when he pursues us and we have an encounter with him, he gives us eyes to see, but he also promises to refine us, to grow us and change us and to make us more like Christ so our new eyes can see those trials as a blessing and not as God's punishment. Well, we go on. Third. You found community among followers, the followers of Jesus Christ. Continuing on, Psalm or uh, Acts chapter 9. By the way, in case you didn't know this, this more, more of this will come out later. Acts chapter 9 may span a number of years in this one chapter. Um, we'll, we'll, I'll talk more about that later. So when it says in the second half of verse 19, for some days... Is that weeks, months, half a year? It just says for some days. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus, Saul did, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, now, again, i got to remind you of the setup here. In Jerusalem, you have the temple. That's the central place of worship. There were a few times a year that you were needed to go there and worship and, and things like that. But then scattered around all the other Jewish cities and enclaves, you would have a synagogue. And that's where there would be a rabbi, a teacher, and perhaps some scrolls, some copies of God's word. And that's where you would gather locally to hear God's word read and taught. Right? So so here's Saul, he's way up in Damascus, pretty far away from Jerusalem. And he's proclaiming Jesus, this guy that came there to wipe out the name of Jesus, is coming into the synagogues and proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul, I get it. It's, very, it's pretty clear to me in the text that Saul... The first reaction of the believers in Damascus were, is this conversion real? Is this did this really happen? Is Saul, is this all a ruse? I mean, a a really good way to infiltrate the Christian community, right, would be to pretend that you've come to Christ and to to fit in for a while, and then, you know, maybe Saul is gonna secretly take down all the names and addresses of the people. Who are christians and then one day he's going to reveal himself as the faker that he is round up all the christians that had him back to jerusalem bound together so maybe there's some he's earned a reputation and so it's right that these believers are doing this how many times have we in this day heard of a celebrity or someone making a profession of faith and their reputation has been so bad so sinful up to then, that that there's a little bit of a well good I'm glad that they made a profession of faith, but let's let's see how this goes for a minute. And we're always filled with joy when that celebrity has made a true that, that famous person has made a true profession of faith and they're walking in the newness of life. And we're always a bit heartbroken to hear someone say, I've made a profession of faith, and then a month later, weeks later, they're back to their old ways. In the last few years I've seen one of the uh, Of the prosperity gospel, make a what some people claim was a very genuine and sincere profession of faith. But guess what he's doing this weekend? He's back to his old ways of name it and claim it, theology, lining his pockets with the money of the saints. So they waited and see. But eventually, he did find acceptance. And again, this this is something that we struggle with in this world to be accepted. In Christ, we are accepted into the church family, right? Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are welcome here. You are welcome among the saints, and it's a a really good idea to to um, be part of that, to be part of the community that worships together, that sings together, that tries to carry out the work of the gospel ministry together. We're all needed here. Paul was also given the opportunity, and he took it, to join the work. In other words, Paul didn't say, this is an argument from silence, it's really bad logic, but Paul didn't say this. He didn't say, oh, Jesus is real. I didn't know that. Okay, well, you know, what I've heard of Jesus' teaching is, is that anybody who follows him, uh, who claims to be a follower of his, they're forgiven of their sins, and they're going to heaven when they die. So, great, I'm going to choose to trust Jesus. Now, where's that Barca lounger? Where's my iPad? I, I need to just waste further the rest of the days away because I'm going to heaven when I die. He doesn't do that, see? He sets himself about the work of the mission. Because he knows about the name of Jesus and that the command to go and make disciples. So he gets busy. He's immediately in the synagogues talking about that Jesus is the Son of God. And all of the Jewish leaders going, are you the Saul that we read about? He confounded them, right? It says he confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 says this about us. Imagine, imagine, we who hated God, we who had an encounter with Jesus, we who Jesus drew to himself are now being described by God this way. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The moment that you think that being a Christian is a chore instead of a tremendous and high honor, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat. God thought of you. He drew your sinful, sorry self to himself and put you in his service. Get cracking. Next, we see in the text that some from your life before Jesus reject you. So Saul is going to now, not only has his life been turned on its head, but all the people that he used to call his friends, his colleagues, his fellow Jews, his fellow God worshipers, That whole system is going to get turned on its head. Verse 23, when many days passed, that many days could be a lot of days, but when many days passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. Think about what I just said. Saul, who was a Jew on his way to Damascus to wipe out all of the Christians, or at least to imprison them and bring them back to Jerusalem, who has had a history of killing Christians, is now being hunted down by his very own people. The irony. The irony. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. Cities in those days had walls for security purposes. This, the city walls had gates, and in those gates, there were several chambers. You could post guards in there, and if you were banned from the city, if you tried to enter the city, the guards would throw you out, but if you were also on the wanted list, if you tried to exit the city, they would capture you, imprison you, and then they could do whatever they wanted with you. So this is the, they were guarding the city gates. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I think that everybody can relate to this, that that as we come to Christ, as God begins to do a work in our lives, as we begin to transform, as our eyes are opened, and as we begin to adopt a new mission for life, there are some in your life, some in your friends, group, your family, who will reject you who will call you stupid or silly or unscientific or not very smart or what, for, for following the strange God in the sky that doesn't exist. These are all the things that I've heard. Second Corinthians, Paul tells us a little bit about this episode. He says this, at Damascus, the governor under King Aratas, that was the king of the Nabataean uh, Nabataean kingdom, King Aratas was guarding the city, the governor uh, of that was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Jesus himself told us that this type of division would happen, right? In Luke, in Luke chapter 12, we read this. Do you not? Do you think, Jesus said, that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, one ha- in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. This is a harrowing thing to think about, but when... We make the decision when God gets a hold of our lives and draws us to ourselves, and we decide to follow Jesus Christ, it will bring alienation. We're seeing it in our culture all the time. All right. And finally, we see in the text, God takes your gifts and the skills that you've honed for selfish reasons and repurposes them for his cause. I love this. Verse 26, and when he had come to Jerusalem, Saul did, when Saul came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Again, his reputation precedes him. But Barnabas, the son of encouragement, right? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostle and declared to them, How on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how Damascus at Damascus, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists and they were all seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here's some things that you need to know about Saul. These are things on his resume, resume, his CV, whatever you want to call it. These are things about Saul in his profile. Number one, he knew the Jewish culture and language well. He was a very well-educated man, but he did not grow up in Israel. Secondly, he was reared in Tarsus, and so that may, meant that he was well acquainted with Greek culture and Greek philosophy. This is going to come in handy later in his ministry. Third, he possessed all the privileges of a Roman citizen. He lived in a city that, that was blessed with Roman citizenship, and so Paul himself was a Roman citizen. That will come into play later in his ministry. Fourth, he was trained and skilled in Jewish theology. He understood what the Old Testament law said. Fifth, he was capable in a secular trade. Paul was a tent maker. And so he was able to support himself when the opportunity was necessary for him to do so. So God took this man, this very capable man, this very educated man, a man from a certain background, and took all of those things that Saul had been developing in himself for his own selfish reasons, and he took those and applied those things to make one of the, one of the most wonderful apostles, the, one of the most prolific writers of the New Testament, one of the most prolific church planters, definitely the most prolific church planter in the book of Acts, if not ever. And that's what God did with him. And later on in his life, When Paul, Saul, later called Paul, was given the opportunity to write about this, this very man, who was so against God, so against Jesus, wrote these words in Galatians 1. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, just listen. Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, and how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of, my own among, uh, many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him for 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they, they only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. God is able to take you where you are as rotten as you've been and to take what you thought were the skills and abilities you were developing for yourself so that you could have the good life and to take those things and use them for his glory and for his purposes. It's a wonderful and beautiful thing reminded of a few verses here first 1 Corinthians 1: 127 but God chose the, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong think of also first Corinthians 12 where we read that the um, Paul writes that the body is made up of many members and each member is valuable and I think of first Peter 4 10 which says that um, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Folks, every single one of you in this room who is a follower of Jesus Christ has gifts and abilities that are valuable. We can't live without them. We need your gifts and your abilities in this body to carry out the mission that God has given us, to walk in the way of love, loving God, loving others, and to teach others how to do the same. You are important. God is at work in your life. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture. And so the answer to the question about how is the gospel of Jesus Christ on display in the life of Saul of Tarsus is this. The power of the gospel is on full display in turning one of the greatest enemies of Jesus into one of his greatest servants through love. This is way, way more profound than the ending of Adolf Hitler who we were all relieved when he died God is so much more powerful than we are he's able to take a guy like that a guy like Saul of Tarsus and turn him into a wonderful powerful servant a mighty instrument in his hand to proclaim the truth on the earth the application of this really is pretty obvious but I'm gonna say it anyway there's a couple of things number one if you're not yet a follower of jesus christ here's the hope of saul of tarsus the hope of jesus christ displayed in saul of tarsus whatever you've done whatever your past the invitation to receive the forgiveness of your sin and the opportunity for new life in jesus is open to you right now and i don't need to remind you i think we all live in this world There's maybe something you know and something you don't know. Here's the thing that you do know. You do know that you're not promised to get home today safe, right? Uh, Health problems spring up out of nowhere. Accidents happen. Uh, Tragedies take place. And so you do have the opportunity right now to trust Jesus as your Savior from sin. Make him the Lord of your life. That's probably the thing that you do know. The thing that you don't know, maybe, maybe you do, is that the Bible is very clear that Jesus could return to this earth at any moment and collect his church. That's where we live in that tension. He could return at any time. And so Saul of Tarsus, who later we call Paul the Apostle, penned these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He said, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now, today, is the day of salvation. If, you, if you're here today and you have not yet trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin, made him the Lord of your life, if you have not yet learned what it means to walk in the way of love, of loving God and loving others, forgetting about yourself and to learn to love others, the day for you to make that decision is today. After the service, Bart Hughes, the man who prayed up here, he'll be up here at the front to pray with you if you'd like to talk about that. I'll be at the door if you want to talk to me. Or there's lots of other believers in this room too. Talk to them. We would love to show you how you can walk in that new way. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then I think the application is also pretty obvious, which is this. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the work of putting off your sin and putting on Christ is yet incomplete. So keep going. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and and could I just refresh your memory just one more time? The witness that we're bearing, uh, the witness that we're hearing about today is the witness of Saul of Tarsus, one of the worst sinners that ever lived, uh, a man who persecuted the church. God got a hold of his life and began a transforming work And Saul did not rest on his laurels, but gave himself completely to the task. And God used him in a mighty way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which so closely, clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before us endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God are you believer can you say with a clean conscience i am running the race with endurance that is set before me if not repentance is always on the table turning away from sin walking in the newness of life it's a gift uh, Rick Thomas calls repentance the believer's secret weapon. If there's sin that you need to confess and turn away from. Do so today. Father, full of goodness, grace, and mercy. Not wanting that anyone should perish, but that all should come to a knowledge of the truth. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I pray that if there's anyone here today who, does, who has not yet made that decision, that they would identify themselves and, and, and ask for that help, that next step, and that we, be, we might be able to work with them as you are already working in them. And I pray that for the rest of us who call upon the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we would run the race with endurance that is set before us, that we would, with the zeal of Paul the apostle, give ourselves to the work of love, loving you and loving others. And as we do that, Father, that you would transform us closer and closer into the image of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.